Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Myself, I want you to love me the way you love the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the, the, the Divinals for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. It's too bad the Divinals are only known for that song because they were really good. Uh, my name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. And before we get rolling, I want to encourage you, if you have not done so already, to join our Facebook group. Lots of cool post pictures, results, discussion, etc. Also, follow me on Twitter. Just uh, search John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling avatar as his avatar. And with that, I want to introduce our host. Uh, we're going to discuss the WWF in the spring of 1982. Spring of 82, my guest was on uh, Spectrum Television. Um, the guys who broadcast the Philadelphia Spectrum shows. Let's hear what he had on that show. From Seacane, Pennsylvania, Jamie Ward states, I really enjoy watching all wrestling matches, either on TV or at the Spectrum. I'm 15, and someday would like to be a wrestling broadcaster. Well, Jamie, study hard. Watch all the matches, of course, as you go along. Read all the wrestling uh, magazines. And, of course, become a broadcaster by getting the proper training. Good luck to you. It's Jamie Ward. Jamie, what's the name of that channel? It was uh, PRISM, the Philadelphia Regional In-Home Sports and Movie Network. It was like HBO, but it had wrestling on it. Yes, it had wrestling and um, all the Flyers, Sixers, and Phillies home games. Oh, and, wow. And roller derby. <laughs> I guess it wasn't all that much like HBO if they had all three uh, major sports teams, minus yeah, was, the Eagles, obviously. It, it was no commercials. It was great. It came out in, like, 76, and I used to go over to my friend's house and uh, and watch it all the time, especially the Spectrum shows. Uh, the first one I ever saw was the uh, Bruno-Billy um, Graham cage match. That was two days before back on winning the belt. Yeah, but, but Superstars final title defense. I remember seeing that and being like, oh, wow, I guess the snooker going through the or snooker putting Morocco through the cage is not unique. No, they definitely uh, barred that ending from the past. <laughs> as wrestling tends to always do but anyway um we are going to go over the world wrestling federation during the spring of 1982 uh let me see bob backland is the wwf champion and has been for four years pedro morales is once again the intercontinental champion mr fuji and mr saito are the tag team champions the top contenders for backland's title are jimmy snuka Blackjack Mulligan, Bob Orton Jr., uh, Adrian Adonis, and Jesse Ventura are still getting some title shots, but they're kind of peaked. And Greg Valentine is close to finishing up. Uh, top baby faces, other top baby faces are Andre the Giant, Tony Atlas, and Ivan Putski. Recently departed our magnificent Morocco, Rick Martel, Angelo Mosca, and Killer Khan. And the top feuds going on are Andre the Giant against Blackjack Mulligan. Tony Atlas against ben Jesse Ventura, the Strongbows against Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito, and Pedro Morales versus Greg Valentine, which is winding down. Jamie, the WWF was always a promotion that they, they didn't run a whole lot of angles, but every one of those feuds at least had some sort of an angle building up to it, which means that we're stepping up from like the, the 70s when the WWF was, quite frankly, even more boring. Yeah, at this point, uh, probably right, this is the start of where once a month we were probably seeing an angle on WWF TV. Aren't we right about the point where Junior buys it from Senior in late we, 82? Or am I we're really off? close. We're really, really close. close. Okay. I think it was September 1982. I'm not sure. But oh. I loved 1982 in the WWF. I mean, we had a slew of new challengers. I even liked, I look bad and I, I look back and I see how bad it was. I even liked superstar Billy Graham coming back. I mean, he's been gone forever. He was one of my favorites. He's back. He's way different, but it's him. Um, 
And I even liked Big John Studd because he was a fresh new face and I, I knew he was going to challenge Andre. And again, I, I mean, Studd would be feuding with Andre until 1986 and then he'd come back and do it again in, in 89. But again, yeah, I didn't know what work rate was. I see this great big guy who's going to fight back when he's going to fight Andre. We've got good times coming up. We have a lot of good times coming up and we're not even going to cover that stuff. No. I'm just saying, like, I I love the whole year. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's and what I consider that looking back at it now, it's the cable TV influence. You have Georgia penetrating a lot of WWF towns. Uh, Southwest was beginning to air on USA Network. Um, LaBelle's promotion was airing in a lot of the um, local areas on the Spanish networks. So WWF had to step up its game. That is a really good point. You're right. I started getting Georgia wrestling, um, you know, and by this point, I'm watching it every week. By this point, um, in 1982, I went to every single Boston Garden show, as well as a whole bunch of different spot shows. So, yeah, I'm I'm finally able to get there. I'm 16, you know, and I can get to Boston. So, yeah, it was just a really the beginning of a really good time. And I my favorite WWF year. I have no problem saying that. Yeah. I- might have to agree with you. 82 was happening. It was it. Yeah, 83. I mean, I, I like Morocco. I like Slaughter. I mean, but we're in reruns. I just saw those matches. Like, I'm getting a whole lot of new stuff now. Anyway, let's talk about the Madison Square Garden show from April 26, 1982. Uh, this event was not televised. We start off with a weird match. Johnny Rods against Baron Mikel Cicluna. Rods actually wins by DQ. I mean, he, these guys have been in the WWF, and they were frequent tag team partners. They'd been there since I started watching in 1976. Oh, yeah. they. I mean, I, every now and then, I'll just go back and look at results from the, the 60s, and those guys were there then. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing how many of the um, WWF wrestlers from the 60s actually made it all the way through up until the early late 80s like the uh the lee wongs <laughs> i mean you're right and and baron mikhil Cicluna is starting to look ancient i mean you just can't help but notice that he's in good shape but i looked it up i mean he's 52 years old at this point the end is clearly near and it's about the point that he goes to the singlet and uh, away yes. the trunks and even as a kid, I'm like, okay, he's wearing a singlet to hide his old body. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Next match is Bob Wharton Jr. defeats Rick McGraw when the match was stopped due to blood. I would have loved to see this because that is a really weird finish for that sort of match. And I've seen photos from the match. McGraw is as bloody as I've ever seen a a wrestler. Like, I've I've just never seen the WWF use a prelim match like this. Yeah, my only guess after reviewing this result is that maybe it was the hard way. And and once it started, they just finished, decided, "Ah, let's let's go big. I mean, maybe it, it looked like a, a pure, uh, you know, a, a pure blade job, but you could be right because I have no other explanation. This, uh, like I said, I've seen pictures. It was crazy. Uh, and Black- especially with, with, with Orton at the time, he wasn't coming in as the vicious wrestler. He was coming in as the, as the, um, the counterpart of Backland where they supposedly had met in high school and college and, and early in the pros. So it's kind of odd for him to be drawing blood. I've got a story about that, that we're going to be talking about during this podcast. It's a local uh, Boston thing, but blackjack Mulligan beats Steve Travis. Uh, Jamie, to me, blackjack Mulligan is every bit as new as like Orton or Adonis because he was before my time and he hadn't been in the WWF in seven years. Right. Because he, what was the last time he was in was about 75. He was the uh, WWF tag team champion. And then he bailed out to go to mid Atlantic after the uh, Johnny, Johnny Valentine and Ric Flair and the uh, airplane crash. Yep. And now, now he's back and he's just by himself, no Lanza. And so I was actually excited to see blackjack coming in because it's somebody who I had read a lot about in the uh, magazines and the old WWF magazines that I, had at the time so i was excited to see blackjack come in 
So was I. Um, and, you know, he's a really big guy. You think, well, we'll we'll talk more about that later. But we're thinking, OK, maybe a feud with Andre the Giant. And I knew about him from the magazines. He was a big star, held the United States Championship in the Carolinas for a long time. He's been a babyface since 79. And I mean, it's funny the way you look at the world as a kid. You're like, oh, my God, Blackjack Mulligan's a bad guy again. Well, of course he is. That's wrestling. Yeah, I mean, that's how he's going to be best utilized in the, in the WWF. All right, Jimmy Snuka defeats Bob Backlund by disqualification. After the match, Snuka hits the Superfly Splash off the top, and the champion had to be taken out of the ring on a stretcher. As far as I know, this is the first time the WWF champion has ever been stretchered out of Madison Square Garden, and I have to think it's the only time ever. Like, no yeah, way Bruno's I, doing that. No way Pogan's no, doing that. And I doubt Pedro ever did that either. No, you're right. I didn't but, even think about Pedro. But it definitely paid off because the, the next MSG was sold out. Yeah, Snooker was as hot as it got. Um, I mean, you know, we just loved seeing that guy on TV. Tony Gurria defeats Charlie Fulton, and then we have Tony Atlas against Jesse the Body Ventura. Tony wins by pinfall. Jesse Ventura was terrible in the ring. He really was as bad as anyone out there. Uh, Atlas was no, no great shakes, but this, I thought, was a great feud. They had two matches in Boston. One was a cage match, and that might have been the the most heat I've ever seen a match get during the Backland era. I mean, the fans in Boston just hated Jesse, and I never noticed that these guys weren't good workers. They just, I just remember them having a really good bloody brawl that we all went home happy that, you know, Hey, we got to see this. It was great looking back, not knowing where, what uh, work rate was, wasn't it? It really was in a way. I mean, I could I, tell you maybe I would go to the Gar Boston garden, like 10, 11 times a year. I could probably rattle off like five matches that were really good and five matches that were really bad. And everything else was in the middle. Yeah, exactly. I, I used to watch those Spectrum shows. They would run a replay on Sunday. They were live Saturday night, and then they'd run a replay on Sundays. And I would just watch it right over again from the beginning. I didn't care, like, just like this one was Johnny Rods against Baron McKell's Queenith. That one bothered me. I'd watch the whole thing over again, and I wouldn't be bored. No, I we had, um, what was it? Well, we've talked about this. Lars Anderson's World League Wrestling was yes. on cable and it was on Saturday morning and then it was on again Sunday night. And I watched it twice. I didn't care. Right. That, and, um, that's, that was a Sally program network. They also had the mid South and the, um, and the championship wrestling from Florida, which was my Florida experience watching it on that channel. I, I watched it as well. And I did the same thing. It was on Saturday afternoon and then it was on again, Sunday night. It didn't matter if I, if I caught it or didn't catch it on Saturday afternoon, I was watching the Sunday replay. Good times. Yeah. We were diehards back then. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we weren't the only ones, you know, and it was no, there great were plenty seeing, like us. Yeah, there was great seeing something that was not WWF. And I always kind of suspected that WWF is a little bit slower paced than the other promotions. Um, let me see. Adrian Adonis beats Pete Sanchez. And then the finale, a six-man uh, tag with Andre the Giant, Ivan Putski, and Pedro Morales uh, defeating Greg Valentine, Mr. Fuji, and Mr. Saito in a best two out of three fall match. The WWF really used their tag team champions in an odd way. And then again, I guess they had to because there was only one other babyface tag team. And you couldn't run that match out there every month. I mean, now we are seeing the tag team champions, and a six-man. Yeah, there was, well, back then, there, as you just said, there wasn't multiple opponents for them to to face each month in and out. So they would mix them into, a, especially Madison Square Garden. They seem to always have a, a six-man tag match to end a show. And most of the time, it was a tag team champions and another wrestler against three other guys. Yeah. And I mean, I get it. They had to do it to keep things fresh. They didn't have like a big tag team scene like they would eventually in like 84, 85. And also the tag champions, if they were heels, like in this case, Fuji and Saito, 
they also would get title shots against Backlund and Pedro in various arenas. Exactly, and uh, we'll have more on that, especially oh. the way the way they oh. use Fuji and Saito. Oh, always doing the job, but they use them. All right, now let me let me see. Now we have something weird that went on in, on April fourth. Uh, Bob Backlund lost to Blackjack Mulligan at the New Jersey Meadowlands on a disqualification, and there was no rematch anywhere in the New York area. Just Backlund lost, and that was it. Which was very rare for Backlund not to get his comeback victory. I think it only happened twice in New York. It happened in 1980 against Larry Zbysko, and it happened here in 1982 at the Meadowlands. I mean, but that was par for the course across the uh, circuit. Bob always, whether it was Philadelphia, Boston, whatever market, very rarely was it ever a one-off with him losing. I, I can't ever think of it happening in the spectrum at all where he would lose, uh, you know, via disqualification or something and not coming back the next month with it, or at least the following month after that case back when it was in Japan or something. No, same here. Uh, if if it happened in Boston, it predated me going to the arenas, and it certainly never happened with Hogan. Oh, no, not at all. All right. Uh, let me see. Speaking of now, I have this in my notes. I mentioned earlier, like if I went to Boston the whole year of 1982, I could tell you five matches that were good, five matches that were bad. Bob Backlund versus Blackjack Mulligan in Boston was one of the bad ones, like noticeably not a good quality match. Well, even though we bought into it big time, we still did recognize when things weren't that great. And especially looking back now, Blackjack was just uh, totally out of shape at this point in his career. He was really big and slow. He really was. I mean, even I noticed that he threw an absolutely horrible punch. Uh, We were talking off the air about five years ago for the first time. I got to see Blackjack Mulligan versus Bob Backlund from Philadelphia. And that match, it wasn't, I'm not going to tell you it was a great match, but it wasn't noticeably bad. I don't know why we had bad luck in Boston. Because they like Philadelphia better. Uh, Maybe it's a nicer (laughs) arena. Well, plus, I mean, you got at the time with all the Philadelphia shows being televised on TV. You know, I'm sure they didn't want clunkers out there. That's a good point. I'm sure that you know, Boston. You know, whatever, fifteen thousand people got to see the match and they formed their own opinion. But like, if you're on TV, you're in in front of a way bigger audience than that. Exactly. See now that it it was either the Spectrum or MSG either preceded the TV tapings or right after the TV tapings each month. That was pretty much the uh, the, the standard. Yeah, all right. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of Blackjack Mulligan, he enters into a feud with Andre the Giant when he attacks Andre on TV, and he bloodies him up with the claw hold, and bl- Blackjack has this magic black glove that's loaded. We'll talk more about this later, but... I mean, they protected Mulligan, which they should have, which probably has a lot to do with, you know, Bob Backlund not getting his win back. Andre's this is Andre's first big man feud since Hulk Hogan in 1980. And Hogan was the first since Ernie Ladd in 1976. I really thought the WWF should have focused maybe once a year on getting a super heavyweight or another giant out there to go up against Andre. Yeah, they definitely should have. But, hey, you can't argue with success. They brought in guys that were bigger than Backlund, but not much bigger like Mulligan was. And it worked for him. Yeah, it did. I just think, you know, I mean, I remember being a little bit bored sometimes watching Andre on TV. I mean, it would be the same handicap match. And, you know, we'd get it like three or four times a year. And it, to, me, to me personally, it got really old. Yeah, I'll agree with that 100%. I mean, Andre in a handicap match, oh, yeah, it was it, it was neat. But like you said, it, it got old real quick. Same and, old. And, and especially as you go further in time, uh, they don't do that as often. And Andre's on TV a lot less. Exactly. It was don't the same old comedy match. Right, exactly. 
All right. We have Swede Hansen returning, and he's got Fred Blassie as his manager, not for long. And at first I was worried. I'm like, oh, my God, instead of getting a good Boston Guard match, I'm going to get a main event. I'm going to get stuck with Bob Backlund versus Swede Hansen. But Swede really didn't get pushed this time around. No, and he eventually turns into the uh, Dick the Bulldog Brower type of character um, by the time his run's all done. Yeah, his run, I mean, they turned him babyface at the end of 1982, and he stuck around until 1985, but he was just another guy. Yeah, that's all he was, yeah. But I guess they just uh, gave him Blassie. Uh, he did that with some other mid-card uh, heels uh, at the time. And uh, example, Bad News Allen College. He was originally hooked up with Blassie, and then they kind of drifted apart, and then Coach eventually started doing jobs to Frankie Williams at the Spectrum. <laughs> and he did one in North Attleboro too, which I which I witnessed myself. So we two people have seen Frank Williams beat Bad News Allen Coach. Yeah, they they would do that with all the managers. I mean, Blassie had uh, he had Torquemada in '76. He had Tiger Lee, Tiger Chung Lee in 1983. So it happened. You get you know you give the guy a manager to start with, and then as he moves down the card, the manager quietly fades away. You know who they should have given a manager to. After I watched these cards, they should have did that with Charlie Fulton when he came in. Charlie Fulton actually looked like a, a legit heel and a good wrestler. He had the size and he had the ability, but they, you know, he was strictly mid card and then down to the job level on TV. Yeah, when Charlie Fulton first came in, he was winning a bunch of matches on TV. So I figured, okay, this guy's getting some kind of a push. And then they just completely pulled the plug on him, you know, without getting any real payoff. For the TV time they invested in him. Makes no sense. Right. They did the same thing with when they brought Mac Rivera back as Jose Luis Rivera. And they gave him a bunch of wins on TV and then just ended up jobbing him out. You know what, though? Jose Luis Rivera, I remember one day they're like, okay, big main event coming up next week. Greg Valentine against Jose Luis Rivera. Yes. Will Will Rivera get to have his streak continue? Answer, no. Not even close. <laughs> Well, you can't win them all. <laughs> at, at least they got that little something out of it. Like, you know, you'd think maybe give Fulton uh, a, a big match against Ivan Putski or Pedro Morales, but no, that didn't happen. But anyway. No, never got to that point. He just got, he ended up in that, I guess, third or fourth match on WOR that the rest of the country never got to see in their local television programs and might get a win there every once in a while, like Larry Sharp or Johnny Rods did in that position. That was a very interesting position because in Boston, we got the localized interviews instead of that match. And you, you know, when I saw it on cable. Exactly. That's what we had in Philadelphia. We wouldn't have that match. So speaking of local interviews, we have Bob Backlund wrestling Bob Orton Jr. in Boston. Uh, I've said it before, one of the best matches I've ever seen live. But it came with a weird local storyline. Bob Orton Jr. gets on TV one week, you know, as they're hyping up the match. And Bob Orton says, you know, something along the lines of, well, I hope Backlund shows up this time. He didn't show up last time. And Vince is like, what are you talking about? And Bob's like, I had a big amateur match scheduled against Bob Backlund, and he chickened out. And McMahon is kind of like, yeah, right. And Bob is like, no, go look it up. He, he didn't show up. He chickened out. Don't chicken out this time, Bob. Well, next week on TV, Orton says the same thing. But this time, Vince is like, I did look it up. And you're right. Bob Backlund, for whatever reason, did not show up in a scheduled match. And Orton's all cocky. Yeah, I told you so. You got to listen to me. And Ben McMahon's like, well, we're going to speak with Bob Backlund about this matter. And Bob gets on TV and he says, yeah, I, I did not show up for a, an amateur match against Bob Orton Jr. My grandmother was in the hospital. And McMahon lets out this gasp, like, oh, I should have known. And that was the storyline coming into the match, that, that Orton claims that, that Backlund chickened out, and Backlund claims that, no, my grandmother was in the hospital. Right, they actually did the same exact thing in Philadelphia for their match in May. I had no idea. Yeah, and then they, uh, they also they did a... Uh, television angle out of the deal where um Orton and Backlund end up getting into a brawl and they have to be separated. 
I read that on the history of WWE site. And that's where I read it. And it all came back to me. Okay, because I do not remember seeing that. And it couldn't just be me forgetting um, but I mean, at this point, I was watching. We we talk about watching shows twice. I would watch the WWF show at midnight on WOR, and then two weeks later, I'd watch it again on Channel Fifty Six, and I just don't remember seeing that. Yeah, we were a week behind in Philadelphia, behind the WOR, and I believe it aired that Saturday morning of the uh, May twenty second Spectrum Card. Okay, yeah, we were two weeks behind in Boston until they finally got caught up during the as when Hulk Hogan came in. But I, I actually have another one of these. You're going to wind up bringing it up, and I'll, I'll I'll mention what happened later. But I know you're going to touch upon it. There's another similar situation where it was localized. But go ahead, let's go. All right, continue on. Okay, uh, a big angle is when Chief J. Strongbow returns to the WWF. This time, he is with his brother Jules. And what a happy coincidence Jules knows how to wrestle. This is great. I recognized him as Frank Hill from the magazines. Yeah, I actually had no idea who he was until I started going back, looking at, as I always did at that time, go back and look at my older magazines. And there was Frank Hill. And I said, wow, that's Jules Strongbow. In the wrestling business, you got to love it. And by this point in our lives, I think, Jamie, we both learned to just play along. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, Steve Travis was the same way. Here, Steve Travis was in the magazines of Steve Muslim, or Muslim, rather. Yeah, I had never seen Travis before when he came in in 1979. I had no idea who he was. But, yeah, I, you know, now I know that he wrestled as Steve Muslin in Knoxville and a couple of other places. Yeah, and a uh, very similar thing with Tito Santana at the time. When he first came up here in 79, I saw him in um, – Mostly the Kitzer magazines, not so much the afters, but the, the Kitzers because they concentrated on some of the smaller uh, promotions and um, they showed him as Richard Blood. Yeah, I had never seen Tito Santana before, and obviously I never heard the name because he never used it. And I was one of those WWF things. Where it's like, OK, who is this guy? I follow wrestling you know through the magazines pretty consistently and like all of a sudden this guy is a star in the wwf i mean we can even go a step further of mr sterling golden and what he became yes (laughs) that was my (laughs) first episode of world of the cable show we were talking about i saw uh sterling golden beat barb armstrong for the southern uh (laughs) southeastern heavyweight championship and i was like whoa what is this (laughs) I I went down to my uh, stepbrother's house in Delaware one time, and on Saturday night, there was uh, Sterling Golden on uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Okay, I, I didn't get Georgia until 1981, so I missed him there. I but just yeah. happened to be at his, at his house watching Georgia Wrestling as one night. And then, <laughs> you know, a couple months later, here he is in the WWF as Hulk Hogan. Yeah, he was already in the WWF as Hulk Hogan when I when I saw him on that show. Speaking of Strongbow, I thought literally, I just figured he retired by this point. And I know he wrestled very briefly in Georgia in 1980, but that's it. So you don't see anything on the guy. You figure he's gone. And when I was preparing for the show, I learned that he had a pretty big run in 1981 in the Knoxville promotion. And... So I and he lived in Georgia, so Knoxville's right there. Oh, I had no idea about that. Now I learned preparing for the show that I was like, okay, what was Strongbow doing? And not very much, but he did have that run in Knoxville. What, was uh, that the uh, when Mulligan and Flair had it? Yes, he was feuding with Kevin Sullivan. Oh, all right. All right. And this begins a long string of employment employment for Chief J. Strongbow. He was around in the office, I want to say, until 97, 98. But now he looks old here. I mean, noticeably, he's got once again, we're talking about guys wearing the singlet. He was overweight and just facially he looked like he'd had it. Well, he did, but he was still over. The fans love Jay. He was re- he and Jules were really over when they first showed up, and we'll talk about that more more later. But I mean, they were over like crazy in Boston. I've seen the tapes from New York and Philly; they were over like crazy there too. Yeah, and then 
two years later, it was over for Jay. Yeah, Jay looked. Yeah. Jay was so shot in 1984. Oh, very shot. But he did the time-honored tradition to a lot of guys, or for a lot of guys. He he and Pat Patterson did that in 1984, and at the time, it it actually made me a little bit sad. It's just like you know, send him home and eh, whatever. <laughs> I'm a I'm a little bit sentimental sometimes <laughs> when it comes to Chief Jay. Yeah, you've mentioned before he was your. Uh... He's the guy that attracted you to the uh, to wrestling. Yeah, I, I went from a casual fan to a hardcore fan, thanks to, of all people, Chief J. Strongbow. All right, big show in Madison Square Garden, June 5th. 1982. Uh, Jose Estrada defeats Laurent Susi with a back flying elbow. I've mentioned this on the show before. Uh, Laurent Susi got his, all, I, I gave him all of the WWF stuff that I had recorded on him on the arm. Obviously, he was a big deal in college. He was a three time uh, all Big Ten wrestler, and it just didn't work out for him in the pros. And I asked him, I'm like, you know, Laurent, what happened? I mean, it seems like you had potential. And he said, um, he's like, uh, show business wasn't for me. And I was kind of, said to myself i don't think you were for show business either yeah he wasn't i mean when you stand in the ring and you don't look that confident that'll kill you quick yeah he was to, on to, TV to me, a couple he, times i i mean watching these Madison square garden shows back over um he just looked like a deer in headlights and there you you could tell he didn't want to be there well, that's that's actually a good point. He seems like the ultimate like Vern Gagne guy, you know, like Brad Rangins has that amateur background, but that didn't that didn't go as well in the WWF. People didn't. No, I was ex- I was excited to see him because the Kaiser magazines actually gave him a nice build up when he first yeah. arrived, but it just never worked out for the guy. No, he actually made the cover of one of the Kiter magazines, but you're right, it just didn't work out. <laughs> Tony Atlas and Greg Valentine have a rematch. Uh, they go to a double, excuse me, not a rematch. Rematch is coming up. They go to a double countout. Uh, both men were brawling on the floor. To me, this, in 1982, this absolutely would have been a dream match because I could have seen either of these guys at the time as a potential NWA champion. So we're talking, in my view, two of the top 20 guys in the, in the entire world. Yeah, and either one could have been and maybe should have been WWF champion also. I mean, worth mentioning, Tony Atlas was over like crazy, and I've said it before, I thought Greg Valentine was going to win the championship uh, October 1981. I thought he would be the WWF champion right now in 1982. Yeah, Tony was in and out for, what, five, six years, right up through 86. He'd come in for six, seven months, disappear for a few, come back, disappear, come back, and and. Until the tag team title change, I mean, he was still over at that point. But up to that, up to that point, he was still over big time. I mean, you mentioned a little bit earlier him and uh, Jesse Ventura. I saw him in Philly, and it was the first time they were in a cage. And it's the first time I ever saw a wrestler go over top of the cage to win, and that was Atlas. Yeah, I, I basically saw the same match in Boston. It was really good stuff. Um, anyway, Bob Orton Jr. beat Steve Travis with a superplex, which is, I remember, I saw my first superplex done by Super Destroyer less than a year later. It knocked me out of my chair. What a move. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, watching it on Georgia, and that was back when they were accusing Super Destroyer of being a mass superstar who had been suspended at the time. But another story, another group. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, for beating up George I, I could keep go. I could keep going on side tangents all night, but we'll see where we're supposed to go. <laughs> That's that. That makes for two of us. Tony Gurria defeats Sweet Hansen on DQ. Um, I I used to get up and I would go to the Seven Eleven down the street and look at the results of the Madison Square Garden shows in the newspaper. And I was so relieved when I saw this result. It's like, okay, Sweet Hansen is not getting pushed. Yeah, you didn't have to worry about him from there on out. Nope, I'm fine with him on the undercard. I just don't want him in the main event against Backlund. Speaking of Backlund, Jimmy Snuka once again defeats Bob Backlund by countout after Snuka beat on Backlund on the floor and rammed his head into a chair. Uh, So this is two losses in a row to the same guy for Bob Backlund. It is, but this match 
was all Bob Backlund. He attacked Snooker before the bell. It was actually, if you think about it, Backlund was kind of the heel in this match. The, the way they, the way they worked, that is. He never let off Snooker. He ended up get working on that arm bar, and then uh, at what? And then finally, Snooker would get the advantage, and both tumbled outside. He rammed Backlund into the the guardrail to re-injure the ribs again. And then Backlund gets up on the term, gets up onto the apron and then Snooker slams his head into the uh, steel post. And I didn't catch it back in 1982 when I was watching it. But if you rewatch the match, you can see Backlund getting ready to do the blade job. <laughs> I, I mean, and I remember too, and Jamie, I'm sure you remember this. I mean, Backlund, they made a big deal out of Bob Backlund getting stretchered out on WOR TV. And Backlund was, you know, he made it clear he's going out for revenge in this match. Oh, yeah. He, he was bloodthirsty. And we'll get into the, the next one also. But it, yeah, Backlund was very heated for both of these matches coming up. And I I missed a match. Ivan Putski defeated Mr. Saito with the Polish hammer. Polish and then, power. Yo. And then we have, um, of course, I lose my place. Pedro Morales defeats Mr. Fuji with a sunset flip. So now we have the tag team champions doing singles matches and losing to two of the top guys. Pro Wrestling Illustrated did an article about the way Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito were used on this night. And it was absolutely brilliant. It was just like a spinoff on the work. It, it praised Captain Lou Albano for being smart enough to put Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito in throwaway matches so he didn't have to worry about them losing the tag team championships. Who cares if they lose a singles match to Putski and Morales and Albano can focus on Jimmy Snuka versus Bob Backlund? That's why he was the captain. He was the visionary. He knew all. <laughs> he was the like guiding light. How did I forget that? Captain Lou Albano, the guiding light. And Fuji and Saito, in my opinion, was his best tag team of this era. Oh, yeah, because all the other ones, the, the Samoans, the Moondogs, uh, even back to the Yukon Lumberjacks, they, they were basically all just cartoon characters at that time. And here you had Saito, who could actually work and was scary. And Mr. Fuji, for, for all of the criticism that he endures, perhaps rightfully so, that man knew how to get heat, and he took good bumps. I don't think he was as bad a wrestler as sometimes people make him out to be. That's because they remember the 1984 stuff team in with George Steele rather than his tag team work with both Saito and Tortonaka. That's a good point. Um, all right. The Strongbows defeat Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis. Uh, I, once again, re I read this result in the newspaper. The, the, the other result made me happy. This one may be kind of sad. It, we know it's the end. The end of Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura in the WWF is either here or close to here. Yeah, that, this was the end. I did find interesting in, in doing my research here. They actually teamed up pretty regularly for the last four months in the WWF. They did, and they were always unique because they came across as a small faction rather than just two singles wrestlers. They were the, you know, connected as the East-West connection, and you're right, they did a lot of tag teaming towards the end. Yeah, I wish they had just brought them in as a tag team to be, you know, to begin with, but they both were respectable against Backlund, drew some crowds. Especially oh, Adonis. What Adonis got two or three uh, New York area matches. He got two in New Batman. York. Yeah, he got two in New York. He got two in Boston. And I think he got two in Landover. I'm not sure about Philadelphia. Yeah, I think he was one and done in Philly. So All right. Was, so is Ventura. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Rick McGraw beats Charlie Fulton in two minutes and 21 seconds. So obviously Charlie Fulton's not going anywhere. Women's match, Moolah and Sherry Martell versus Judy Martin and uh, Penny Mitchell ends at three minutes and 30 seconds. And then we have Andre the Giant fighting Blackjack Mulligan to a double countout. And the way they did this in Boston, just, uh, Jamie. Blackjack Mulligan had the glove and the glove was allegedly loaded. And Andre would steal the glove, right? 
And Blackjack, it was weird. It's like the magic glove. Blackjack just can't get another glove. Andre's got his glove now. Andre couldn't just get his own glove. The whole thing was weird. <laughs> yeah, but they also, do, what was it? They did the angle where he, um, where Mulligan attacks Andre and winds up making him bleed with the, with the glove. They did. And then they did the match, the uh, six man at Madison Square Garden, where Andre had the glove. And I mean, what can I say? I make fun of it, but the fans ate it up. Yeah, that's when I was talking earlier about the uh, special area angle that that angle between Andre and Blackjack Mulligan only aired in the New York market at the time, I, I believe, because it didn't air on the Spectrum show until they were ready to wrestle or didn't air in Philadelphia until they were ready to wrestle in um, August in the Philadelphia spectrum. Okay, wow. I, they, I think it aired delayed, in Boston at the same time. Yeah, they delayed, they delayed that one. They did the same thing a few years before with um, Hogan and Andre when that time Hogan put the uh, object into the armband. That was shown first on New York TV, and then later when they had matches in Philadelphia, they re-aired that angle because they never showed it in Philadelphia to begin with. They did the same thing in Boston. It was the weirdest thing. It, it aired like three months later. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I mean, <laughs> sorry about I, that. I just... No, I, I, I just don't know why they wouldn't do Boston, New York and Philly, Philadelphia at pretty much the same time. But anyway, Rocky three opens in the theaters. Hulk Hogan makes a memorable cameo. And I remember uh, Memorial Day weekend, 1982. I went to the theater to see this movie just because Hulk Hogan was in it, much like I did a year earlier with Escape from New York with Ox Baker. It's not even that I was a fan of these guys. Just, wow, Hulk Hogan is in a movie. I got to see the movie. Yeah, I went and saw it also. And one of the reasons I went to see it was because during one of his Spectre matches, either in 80 or 81, um, Cal Rudman always did interviews backstage where the guys were kind of, kind of in character, but kind of out of character. And at the time... Hogan had, I thought he was BSing at the time. He had just said, I just got done um, an interview with Sylvester Stallone and I'm going to be in the next Rocky three. So I, saw I knew that. Yeah. I, I knew he was going to be in it. And sure enough, it turned out to be a true thing. I, I saw that interview and you're right. Hulk Hogan was out of character and Rudman is sitting there going, ah, oh, you see, he's not such a bad guy. <laughs> you're not if, supposed if for, to say that. If, if for no other reason for everybody out there, if you can find the old Spectrum shows, just fast forward until you get to a Cal Rudman backstage interview. They're well worth it. They're, they're classics because the guys are totally in character. And like, like you just said, Cal would just say some wild things you just wouldn't say. I remember Cal just practically hyperventilating over Rick Martell. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, those those were the days when you had the local guys doing it. And I remember one time uh, Dick Graham and Vince McMahon were doing commentary. And I, for, I, I forget what Dick Graham said, but he said something. There was silence. And they just says, sorry about that. to Vince McMahon. He wasn't around <laughs> much long after, after that. Yeah, well, it started out with with Vince doing it. And then they added Dick, Dick Graham and Vince. And then somewhere in 79, Vince stepped away from it and they added monsoon into the act and then monsoon stepped away and they put rudman into it uh who was doing the backstage interviews rudman was something else i, I mean what match was it i think it was backland slaughter where like <laughs> rudman says that oh i know what's gonna happen next he's gonna ram his head into the ring post and bust him open that's how they did it in new york <laughs> I'm not surprised. And it happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but people Cal really, you, you need to see the Cal Rudman interviews there. Uh, everybody used to, I mean, a lot of guys on the internet now beat up Dick Graham and Cal Rudman, but they were my hometown announcers. I love those guys. I, I don't, you know what? They had a certain charm. When they were doing the shows, it really felt like there was no other place they wanted to be. They were living their dream, and, and that goes far with me, that that enthusiasm they had. And by that, that clip you played at the very beginning, that was my dream at that point in my life. I wanted to do what they were doing. 
Hey, why not? It looks like the greatest job in the world. And I mean, eventually I did. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean. No, yeah, go ahead. But but eventually I did get that shot. Dennis Carluzzo threw me on a Larry Sharp um, WWA TV taping when their announcer didn't show up one night. And I ended up doing three hours of their of his TV show. So out there somewhere in video land is me doing uh, commentary on, for three hours. Nice. Uh, we all we all miss Dennis. Dennis was something else. All right. Dennis was the man. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> Playboy Buddy Rose makes his debut in the WWF. This was so great. He had two female wrestlers for valets. It was usually Sherry Martell and Penny Mitchell. And one of my friends wasn't even a big wrestling fan. And he would go ballistic every time he saw Buddy Rose. He'd be like, that that slob with his hair dyed to death. And I wouldn't let either of those girls touch me. And that, you know, I even understood it at the, at the time. That's heat. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. The, the um, I I liked Buddy. Or uh, let, let me rephrase that. I was actually worried for back on at that point with Buddy Rose coming in because I had read all about him in the Kitzer magazines from his Northwest, and he was a legend in the Northwest. So now he's coming east to go go against Backlund. I actually thought Backlund, you know, at the time might have a shot of losing to Buddy because Buddy could also wrestle, very similar to to Bob Orton. What's funny is that I had the exact opposite response. Like I enjoyed Buddy at the time, but I I think on the list of guys who are never going to beat Bob Backlund, in my opinion, I think he was at the very top of it. That's why it makes opinions great. Exactly. And he actually had a really good match against Pedro Morales in Boston. One of those matches I remember for being good. And obviously it was all Buddy Rose. Yeah, he had a good WWF run, but it, it is true what you said. By by the end of that run, most people were just saying this guy's nothing but a fat slob. Yeah, and he he made it work for himself. I mean, like I said, the guy he knew how to be a heel. Bob Backlund introduces the cross face chicken wing as his new finisher, uh, finally getting rid of the old atomic drop that he'd been using since 1976. I hated this because the cross face was a legit killer hold that I knew. And I once used to defend myself and now everyone knows about it. That sucked. (laughs) Your dream was broken. (laughs) I had to go out and find a new killer real wrestling maneuver i used to throw the figure four on guys yeah but not in a real fight no not in a real fight but in uh, high school wrestling and then i get disqualified and who was who was the dumb one i didn't have to wrestle anymore (laughs) go ahead i'm sorry i keep going sideways today john i'm sorry no, I was interested in being a high school wrestler, and the, the coach told me I had to lose 18 pounds. I was like, I'll keep my 18 pounds, and you keep your ringworm. Forget yeah, it. That's, that's too much exercise. Go ahead. <laughs> too much weight for me to lose. All right. Salvatore Belomo makes his de- debut. I <laughs> Sal- It was like Lodka becomes a pro wrestler. <laughs> Excellent analogy. I mean, Andy Kaufman, as he got older, he was losing his hair and there was no Rogaine or anything back then. There was nothing he could do about it. So he had this insane comb over that went started like an inch above his ear and went like across his head. Beloma wasn't losing his hair and he went for that move, went for that look. He was a trendsetter. He was something. <laughs> I I I thought he he went a year a bet before he really started jobbing to people. No, they, I, I think they really liked him. They they must have. I mean, he was protected for a long time, and I'm sure many of you remember him as just a jobber. But like in '82, he got an underneath push. Yeah, it was well into '83 before he started losing. It was well in the, into '84 before he started losing on television. Now, he would, you're right, he would lose at the arenas, but only to, like, the big stars like superstar Billy Graham or John Studd for a long time. They did protect him. Yeah, exactly. All right. And we'll finish off June 28th, Madison Square Garden. We are slightly... We are a, a week into summer, but what the heck. Uh, Johnny Rods pins Rick McGraw. Uh, 
at 10:32. I mean, wow, Rick McGraw was over. Johnny Rods was established as hey, he's kind of just a job guy. I don't get this result. Well, this was the end of uh, of Rick McGraw. He goes off to the Memphis and Southeastern after this. Oh, I did I, not know that. Yeah, if you know, if you um, he has the blonde hair in this match. I, I and, didn't remember and, that. And I can only find one or two more results after this show of McGraw appearing. And this uh, is the official end of the, I guess, the Carolina Connection, who, believe it or not, they received, I went through each one March, April, and May. They received seven title shots. They were over. against. Yeah, they were well over against Fuji and Saito, but they never got never got the belts. But th- I also remember them being on the cover of one of the culture magazines. I remember that as well in the, with, with the Carolina blue trunks and jackets. Yes. I have a false memory of them being around summer 1982. I have the summer and spring confused. Yeah, no, I think this was the end of him. He goes off to Memphis and uh, teams up with Troy Graham as um, the New-, New York Dolls. New York Dolls. <laughs> Uh, leave it to Jimmy Hart. <laughs> anyway, that that had to be a Jimmy Hart production. All right, Sweet Hansen defeats Laurent Susi at three twenty four. So he's not getting a big push. A battle of your favorites. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. Not that I disliked either guy. I just didn't want Sweet in the main event. Uh, Salvatore Belomo over Baron McKill Cicluna. Um Drop kick in the splash. Bob Orton Jr. defeats Pedro Morales by DQ in 1438. I guess this is the New York City buildup for Backlund versus Orton. Uh, Orton gets three big wins in a row. Yeah, he beat both Carolina Connection. Then he goes over Morales. And actually, this is a reverse of what they normally do. Normally in New York, the Intercontinental Champion doesn't get a guy until he's on his way down. And Nothing. here, Orton was on the way up. Yeah, it's totally different. Usually after you had your run with Backlund, you got uh, title matches against Pedro Morales. Uh, This rule is broken. Morocco broke that rule a couple of times. That's right. He did, too. All right. And then we have Blackjack Mulligan over SD Jones. I'm guessing Andre was in Japan or something. Probably. All right. Steve Trey. Steve Travis over Charlie Fulton. And then match number three in the three-match series, Bob Backlund defeats Jimmy Snuka in a steel cage match at 15-10, avoiding the lunge from the challenger from the top of the cage. Uh, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, but Lou Albano got on TV every week, and they had a special stipulation. You had to go out the door. You could not go out over the top of the cage Nice little detail because it stops people from asking why Snooker just didn't climb out. And every week on WOR, Lou Albano would get out there and he would basically promise that Jimmy Snooker was going to jump off the top of the cage. Yeah, every week. And I was looking forward to it. And this is what I consider the change of Bob Backlund was this match. Because if you listen close enough in the background, it was a 50-50 split with the fans who they were cheering for. And when Backlund did win that, you heard the booze. And you almost never heard booze for Bob Backlund. I mean, from the tapes I've seen from New York, tapes I've seen from Philly and personal experience in Boston, Bob was not getting booed until Jimmy Snuka came to that building. Right, exactly. And that was the, the beginning of the end for Backlund, which gets continued when Billy Graham shows up but that's for you the next uh wwf podcast yeah this was the the start of the fans turning on bob backland and by the time backland lost the title or after backland lost the title that turn was pretty complete jamie i started trading for tapes the beginning of 1987 and this was the match i wanted i knew it was available I had seen clips of the match on uh, All-American Wrestling, but not the whole thing. This was the match I wanted to see in its entirety. I wanted to see it over and over again. And, of course, it disappointed. You didn't get to see this on USA Network at the time? Uh, no, I didn't. Oh, well, I, I did. That's and, and actually going into the match, this is around the time I kind of started getting smart because I started getting some sheets. And 
knowing what was going to happen on July 4th, I kind of knew Snooker wasn't winning this match, no matter how much I wanted him to. I, I knew he wasn't winning this one. Yeah, I kind of figured I couldn't picture Snook as WWF champion either. But what sheets were you getting in 82? Um, well, I was starting to get the Observer. Oh, wow. I, I was getting uh, a guy. Guy's name was Dan Billings. Yeah, I think it was called Wrestling Wrestling Around the World. And he was out of Portland, Maine. And it, I don't know where he was getting his information but it was he was probably getting right from Melter. He was kind of using when I would get both of them at the same time a little bit later on. They both had like the same news in it, so I'm guessing he was probably taking Melter's stuff at that point. Um, I was also getting some copies of uh, Jim Cornette's buddy uh, Norman the Weasel Dooley, his Weasel World, and I was also getting Fred Adams, who was doing Georgia Wrestling News at the time. So that's oh, and how can I forget? There was actually a guy in the neighborhood, two or three neighborhoods away from me, who was putting out a newsletter called Leonard Warner's Wrestling Corner. And he would go up to all the WWF TV tapings. And I would have the information before um, I even saw him in the, the results in the other two sheets. Okay, wow. So you were like almost five years ahead of me getting newsletters. Wow. Yeah, but you, you're light years ahead of me now. I don't know about in, that. In, in wrestling knowledge, you're, you're light years ahead of me. I wish I could remember everything I used to read. <laughs> I don't know about that. But anyway, we have Chief J Strongbow and Jewel Strongbow defeating Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito to win the WWF Tag Team Champions when Jules pins Fuji. Fuji had his foot on the bottom rope during the pin, and the titles were declared vacant. This, I thought, Jamie... The, the titles being held up and the subsequent feud was a huge mistake. The Strongbows were over like crazy, and I thought this kneecapped them. And Fuji and Saito went on to regain the titles, and the feud dragged out. By the time the Strongbows actually won the titles, the fans didn't care anymore. Right. They should have just let them have the, have the titles here. And And for years, I was actually confused over the result of this match. I thought they had to rematch on TV and Fuji and Saito regained the belts somewhere in my mental, mental state. I, I must have a mental block. I missed the part on television where they said it was held up. And I don't remember reading it in the sheets back then either. It was only until recent years that I realized that the belts were actually held up and then they had to rematch. But it, it, as far as TV tapings are concerned, I, I wonder if Putski might've made a mistake. No, I, I think and, and made a three count because the TV taping was the week before this this show, so they had to insert this into the the, the tape they were uh, bicycling around the territory. Huh? Because I mean, I remember they they announced that the titles were held up as they aired the match from Madison Square Garden, and I like I said, I thought it was a huge mistake because. As much as I liked the Strongbows at the time and Fuji and Saito at the time, I mean, it, it felt so convoluted and dragged out, and they should have just had the Strongbows defending the championships. I and like, I, you know, I think they, by having the Strongbows vacate the titles and then lose a match on TV, I, I thought that really hurt them. Yeah, there was a three. The rematch was July thirteenth in Allentown, so it doesn't air until. The, the following Saturday in New York. And then you're talking another week after that in Boston, another week in that in Philadelphia. So you just spread that whole time out. And like you said, it, they just lost all their steam right in that point. And by the time the Simones come along, the fans were actually kind of becoming heel fans and they were ready for the Simones. Yeah, I, if I recall correctly, the Samoans, this is how sloppily the tag team division was handled. The Samoans actually debuted while Fuji and Saito were, were still the champions. So, like right. I said, very sloppy. Well, they did the same thing with the Moondogs. They brought the Moondogs in before uh, the Samoans had lost the belts to, what was it, Putski and Santana? Uh, no, Martell and Marte And that was another 
big convoluted mess with the tag team titles. They did not book those belts well at all, in my no. opinion. All right, Tony Gurria defeats Adrian Adonis uh, by DQ. But, I mean, talk about just, you know, getting on the megaphone and saying, okay, Adonis is leaving. Yeah, that's exactly what th- what that was. And then we have Tony Atlas defeating Greg Valentine in three minutes when Valentine just walks to the dressing room after taking a few headbutts. I mean, Valentine as well. They made it obvious. Okay, he's gone. Jamie, I love the days of rotating heels and getting new guys over. But for me, it was still sad when my favorites left. And Valentine, Adonis, and Ventura are clearly on their way out. And from what I can tell, this was the end for all three. They didn't work again on any shows after that. Okay, well, it, it makes sense. I mean, they had their run, and that's the way it goes. Sadly, that run is over. Jamie, you wanted to talk a little bit about Bob Backlund defending the championship uh, against Ric Flair in Atlanta, or, or having a unification match in theory, and the buildup they had on Georgia TV. Right on the, uh, it was billed for the Fourth of July. It was title versus title, Backlund versus Flair, and. They actually had Backlund go down to the WTBS studios, I think, twice to do interviews to um, promote that show. And they also used it on the the Best of Georgia Championship Wrestling. And at the time, there not only that, they had Ivan Putski go down for that 4th of July show, too. But as I was saying earlier, they, I, I knew Snooker wasn't beaten Backlund just because this match was already arranged on yeah, the 4th they- of July. Fourth of July, and you they weren't going to substitute Snuka for uh, for Backlund in Atlanta. No, I don't have that that card in front of me, but I I know they had a couple of WWF guys. They had Putski, they had Snuka, they had Backlund. So well, it was it, kind of a yeah. It was supposed to be uh, Putski and Tommy Rich against Stan Anson and Ole Anderson for the NWA Tag Champs, but for some reason Tommy Rich didn't make the show, and Tom Pritchard worked twice once with Putski and then he works again against the super destroyer later in the show. And yes, uh, Snooker goes down there and has a match with uh, Paul Orndorff on that show. Snooker versus Orndorff should have been really good in 1982. And yeah, I've, I mean, right. I talked about Snooker versus Backlund being my white whale, that 4th of July, 1982 Omni show. If I had to pick any show that, okay, it's going to be on Peacock. That would be the show for me. Yeah, I just find it interesting how this relationship came to be for this particular match. Is this Jim Barnett working with Senior, or is this Jim Barnett working with Junior? By this advance? point. Be- because a month earlier, they had George, or two months earlier, Georgie Animal Steals there. That's with, right. With, Dust- with Dusty Rhodes. As a baby face with Dusty Rhodes. No, I, I, by that point, it was still Vince Sr., but uh, Vince Jr. was literally weeks or months away from taking over. I mean, because if you if you look at the card, El Saito also appears on that 4th of July card, working against Kevin Sullivan. And then within a year, and then you had the Freebirds against the Samoans, who wind up in the WWF within two months. Um, Superstar Wrestling 2 But then you had Morocco and Piper um, Against Dusty Rhodes Well it was Morocco with Piper against Dusty Rhodes And Morocco's back Within months Piper's in within a year and a half And and then you have John Studd against Leroy Brown John Studd's in within a year So there's a lot of And Orndorff's in within a little over a year So a lot of cherry picking The Georgia talent going on at that point yeah, it's funny. We look back and obviously the two sides are cooperating. We have the two shows that have the most uh, promotions, excuse me, with the most cable penetration. And, you know, this is July 4th. By the end of the year, these promotions are kind of at each other's throats. Vince McMahon hires the Samoans. They leave with the Georgia Tag Team Champions or being Georgia ch- Tag Team Champions with no notice. And Ole Anderson got on TV and he complained about it. He said that, you know, the Samoans chickened out against uh, Paul Orndorff and Tommy Rich, and they're wrestling somewhere else. And wherever that wrestling is, it must not be very good. And long term, that turns into the uh, debut of the Road Warriors because they went months without tag team champions. And they were going to do Arn Anderson and Matt Bourne, which we know went off the rails for reasons. 
and all led into the Road Warriors. Yeah, the Road Warriors was a kind of a panic plan, and Rick Rude was originally going to be one of the Road Warriors, but they, um, you know, like I said, I mean, uh, 1983, the booking in Georgia was just terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was, and that's the reason I end up selling out to Vince in 84. Yeah, exactly. Business had, had hit the skids. Well, Jamie... Thank you for coming on. It was great talking about the WWF Spring 1982 with someone like me who lived through it. Yes, I did. Just like you, I lived through it. And it was my honor to start the countdown to 300. <laughs> well, thank you again for coming on. I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. I want to thank uh, Brian Lastnick and Arcadian Vanguard for giving us this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does. And, and you guys have no idea what an important part of the show Lou is. Uh, he A lot of stuff you can't see, but it's there. And he's really flexible, and I appreciate it. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.